I had this uh, book somebody gave me uh, for Christmas a couple of years ago. It's, um, it's kind of cool. It's a, sort of like a coffee table book. Uh, lots of pictures in it. And uh, it's Life Magazine put it out. So the, the, the title is uh, Life Magazine, 100 Photographs That Change the World. And uh, just filled with these great pictures taken over the years. Um, this, is the, this is what they say in the beginning, in the intro to this book, before you really get to the pictures. It says this, words. Ever since the chisel was taken to stone, it's been accepted that words can and do change the world. Whether it be the New Testament, or Shakespeare, or the Declaration of Independence, the effects of words can reach so many hearts and minds that it impacts the human condition and the course of mankind. Speeches incite, editorials persuade, and poems inspire. Can photographs do the same? We think so. And then you get this huge book with tons of pictures. Um, the process they went about when they put the book together, they, um, they asked people to kind of nominate, suggest pictures that they think should make this top hundred. So they got thousands of them, and then the uh, editors of Life magazine kind of went through them, and they picked out a hundred, and they put them in these four categories. Um, society, science, the arts, and war. It's a pretty cool book. Um, many of the pictures you definitely know, you've seen, but then there were a lot that at least I had never seen. Um, and there's a little bit of a paragraph next to, each, next to each one explaining, you know, what happened, what was going on when it was taken, the context. So they got Iwo Jima and the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima. They got 9-11 when the great picture of the firemen uh, raising the flag uh, in the rubble in the city. Um, the JFK assassination, the moon landing, the Beatles, uh, Jackie Robinson. And then there's some really grim stuff. You know, it's, it's a great book. Um, it's one of these books, like, so much of, you, you'd completely want kids to be looking at and learning from, but then the sections where you'd be a little hesitant, at least little kids. Um, terrible pictures of the Holocaust and uh, f pictures of famine, children starving from famines throughout the world over, th over the years, the Great Depression. There was one picture that I... Uh, when I saw it, I really wanted to check it out even more because I, I remember when it was taken. It was 1989, and it was uh, Tiananmen Square. Uh, those of you old enough, I suspect, will remember it. It was uh, in Beijing, China. There was this student protest. They were protesting the Chinese, the communist government in their oppressive way. 
Um, this protest went on for a couple of months. Eventually, the communists said, enough, and they crushed it. They came in with uh, tanks, and there was this massacre. Hundreds, maybe they say even thousands, died. But this photo is pretty, pretty wild, and there's a, a video that kind of goes along with it. Um, there's this picture of this long line of tanks coming down this Tiananmen Square, this main strip. I don't know, there must be like 10 or 12 of these tanks. Total show of force, power, like domination. And then out of nowhere, well, out of, the, out, of the, out of the crowd on one of the sides comes this student, one of the protesters, and he runs in front of the, the lead tank so it can't go anywhere. Photographer was filming it uh, from a hotel a good distance back, but you see it. The, the photograph is this, this guy just standing in front of this tank, it's a whole line of tanks, like just staring it down. Um, truth to power. Just incredible act of courage and, and defiance. They don't really know what happened to that guy. People from the crowd pulled him away, ran out, pulled him away from the tank, and they don't know if he was arrested. Some people say he was executed. We don't really know. But we know this. We know he inspired people. I think there's times in life, aren't there, when like, you just gotta say enough, no more, no. That's what this moment in this image totally, boldly can conveyed. In that book, there's some other really amazing pictures of uh, similar kinds of images, different part of the world, different issues, but people saying enough, people standing up to power and, and corruption, great pictures of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, People saying, no more. We're just not, we're not accepting this anymore. We won't, we won't put up with this oppression. We will not bow to your corrupt authority. It's this gospel. It's Jesus before Pilate. Pilate is just like the total image symbol of power and might. He's like the tanks. And Jesus is standing before him, and Jesus is like, I know. I mean, I, I know you got the muscle, short-term muscle. I know you got the power, but it's all fleeting. So I'm not listening to you. I won't be silenced by your power, Pilate. This weekend, we celebrate... Um, it's kind of a feast day. It's called Christ the King. And it's this time of the year every year. It's right before the beginning of Advent, which is starts next Sunday. And this feast itself isn't even that old. It's like 100 years old. 1925, uh, the Pope at the time, Pius XI, he came up with this idea like, I want to just, I want to create this image of Christ as King. 
what was going on in Europe in 1925. A lot of dictators, a lot of tyrants, fascism and Nazism wasn't that far off. Hitler was starting to, to gain influence. So the Pope's thinking was this. We need to remind the people that we don't bow to tyrants. We don't surrender to bullies. No matter how much muscle they've got, no matter how many tanks, we don't bow to them. We bow to Christ. He's our king. There's lots of authority out there and lots of legitimate authority that we ought to honor and respect, but nothing is bigger than Christ. No authority should ever take priority over Christ. And when that happens, we mess things up. We start listening to some other truth over God's truth. That's never going to work. That's never going to end up well. When we make something or someone more important than Christ. So, I mean, I think here's a kind of a logical question that should come from this feast day, this Christ the King thing. Who rules your life? What rules your life? Who or what holds power over the choices you make? Who's your king? What that Chinese student was clearly saying when he faced down that tank was, communism is not the king. Who's your king? Who do we bow before? Who should we never bow before? I saw this, speaking of pictures, I saw this one a couple of weeks ago. It was um, some school board meeting somewhere, I don't even know where it was. And it was this picture of this woman who was speaking uh, kind of like this up at, a, at the podium at a, at a school board meeting and it was apparently very tense and very crowded. A lot of back and forth. And they cut, or they cut her mic because she was saying things that they didn't want to hear. She was kind of calling them out on some of the stuff that they were teaching in their classes. She said, content of character is what matters, not the color of your skin. We all come from God. We're all God's children. So we're all equal. And of course, historically, terrible things played against that. But this notion that color of your skin should trump content of character is crazy. And she started to say that. This woman was black. And the picture is of her, like she's got this look of just such frustration in her eyes because they, she realized they've just pulled the plug on her mic. She said, I don't want my kid being taught to hate white people. I don't want my, my daughter being ta taught to prejudge people because of the color of their skin. That's exactly what Martin Luther King railed against. I don't want my daughter being told she's a victim because of her skin color 
or that she's got two strikes against her because of her race. So she was pushing back and she was saying, no, like, no, this is not okay. I won't bow before this corrupt king. And you know what? I mean, communism and racism, I mean, they're obvious evils, clearly horrible stuff. Sometimes it's more subtle, though, these corrupt kings that control us. Sometimes it's way more personal, kind of internal stuff. The things that keep us unfree. I bow to the, the need to be accepted, or to be liked, or to be popular, and to be included. Like, there's nothing in my life, maybe, that's more important to me th- than that. Like, that's my king. So the result of that is, I'll become whatever I have to be in order to be accepted. Because that's all that really matters. How sad is that? We all know people who bow before that king. I have to be included. And I'll do whatever it takes to be accepted. I remember about, I think about six years ago, right next door at the school, uh, we had an assembly. Uh, Stephen McDonald, the police officer, spoke. He was, uh, back in the 1980s, he was shot in uh, Central Park and he was paralyzed from the neck down. I mean, most people know his story. I'll never forget that afternoon in the school. There must have been 300 kids in the, cafe, in the gym. You could hear, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. They were so riveted on what this guy had to say. Third graders that like weren't even moving, who were usually like all over the place and fidgety and trying to keep their total focus. He talked about the guy that shot him and put him in that chair and how he forgave him. And maybe about 10 years before that, I was out at St. Anthony's High School and he spoke there. Probably 1,200 high school kids. Same experience, same reaction. Man, what was it about Stephen McDonald that could silence kids for like a long time? I think it had to be part of this. They just couldn't believe that he'd forgiven this guy. Because you watched him, he was so dependent on people for virtually everything. He couldn't scratch his nose if he had an itch because he couldn't raise his hand because the guy with the gun took that away from him. And he forgave him. And when you listen to him speak, he was, you know, he had this machine that was pumping oxygen into him. It was a total project for him to speak because of what this guy had done. And he forgave him. And I think all of us next door and all of us out at St. Anthony's that day were like, how do you do that? How could you, how could you be so forgiving? How could you so show that guy mercy? You know, we can become imprisoned by anger. You can become paralyzed by bitterness, can't you? We all know people who are just, man, they can't get past the, their anger. And it may be very valid anger. I suspect it is. But they can't let it go. 
It rules their life. They're like, that's their king. This ugly king that controls everything they do. Remember the Charlottesville, the shooting in that church? Charlottesville about six years ago? This guy came in and shot the place up. He killed nine people. It was a Bible study. And nine people were murdered. And at the hearing, when this guy, I guess, was sentenced, the family members of the people who were murdered got up and spoke, and they forgave this guy. Same thing. How do you do that? How could you forgive the person who took your, your mother or your brother or your kid away? And they did. I think it's this. Christ is their king. I think Stephen McDonald, I think those Ch Charlottesville people, they simply made Christ their king. And what does that mean? Well, God, we gotta try and be forgiving. We gotta try and be merciful. We can't let that control our lives. Easier said than done, but that's what we do when we bow before Christ. They made Christ their king. And I just think here's the challenge for all of us. We've got to look at our lives and overthrow whatever corrupt king lives in your heart. Whatever messed up king makes you less than the person you're meant to be. Whatever rotten king keeps you from Christ, stage a coup. Lead a rebellion, lead a revolt, and upend that king. And make yours Christ. You know that book, that picture book, um, they had a picture of Abraham Lincoln, and I was looking at it, and, and I, I was looking at the book just yesterday, because I wanted to, I was thinking about all this, and just looking at this picture of Lincoln, and I mean, I've always seen pictures of him, but I was like, kind of amazing that we had photographs of President Lincoln in a way, so long ago. And then I thought, man, you know what, there's no, obviously, we got no pictures of Christ. There's no photographs of Jesus, obviously, right? But we all got these images, they're all from artists, people who over the centuries have just created images of Jesus. Man, can you imagine if there was photography back then? Can you imagine if there were pictures? What that would be like? Imagine like a picture of a, a huge crowd listening. Maybe the picture would be of the crowd, people listening spellbound like those kids did next door a couple of years ago. So dialed in, so focused. Maybe this, maybe a picture on the Sermon of the Mount. Maybe in the, in the distance you see Jesus. But really what you see is the people. Or maybe there'd be another picture of a, one of the lepers that he healed. Maybe it'd be this, this cleansed leper embracing his mother for the first time in years. Because he was, he was paroled from leprosy. And maybe in the background you see Jesus just walking away after having done his work. Or a picture of him on the cross. Or him as a baby in the stable. 
But we got no pictures. But we kind of do. We kind of do have pictures of Jesus. We got pictures of Stephen McDonald. And we got pictures of those Charlottesville families. We got that picture of that Chinese student. And we got you and me. So stage a coup. 